Uh, please remain standing as we continue worship with a reading from Psalm 23. Now, as most of us probably know these six verses, I'm going to ask you to say it with me. Uh, we'll take it slow, but you can do it. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat as soon as you say hello to someone next to you. Hey, Gary. Good job, Mike. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Well, fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you're here today. Uh, I'm Chris. I'm the teaching pastor here. If you're a guest, welcome. Um, if you're new, uh, our norm is to just kind of open up the Bible, spend some time in it. We come to the table at the end, and then we make time uh, to pray for people. If that's something that you'd be interested in having someone pray for you or pray for someone else. I feel like I'm ringing. Is that okay? Everyone okay? Um, if you have your Bibles, um, open them up to Luke 12. We're going to jump right in today. While you're pulling that scripture up, um, let me prime the pump for what we're going to talk about today with some real chipper stats and ideas, okay? Real chipper. Uh, anxiety disorders are the most common mental illness in the U.S. Uh, yeah, affecting uh, around 40 million uh, adults, 20% of the adult population. Uh, according to data compiled by the U.S. Census Bureau, more than 4 in 10 adults had developed symptoms of depression or anxiety by the end of 2020. That makes sense. A sharp increase over the year before. Uh, for many in our society, there is a reservoir of anxiety uh, bubbling under the surface of everyday life. And if you think about it, um, there's no shortage of things to fear, like real things to be afraid of in life that are super scary. Uh, obviously, fear of sickness has been amplified to 11 in our society, right? If you weren't a germaphobe before, you are now. Uh, political unrest, economic uncertainty has ripped some people's poor psyches to shreds. You might be one of those people. Uh, we fear tragedy uh, striking us. We fear destitution. We fear losing our jobs. We fear losing our wealth. These are all real things that are scary. <laughs> Uh, one phone call can change your life. We fear all these things. One missed red light. We fear the unknown. We fear what might be lurking in the shadows beyond the lights. We fear not measuring up. Aren't you glad you came to church today? We, we fear being disapproved of. We fear not having enough. We fear not being included. N.T. Wright says modern Western society is built on anxiety. He says, our employers use our fears to motivate us. They set lofty goals that we fear not meeting. Then when we do meet them, they immediately raise the goals that we spend the rest of our year worrying that we will not meet. Moneymakers, advertisers are constantly using your fears to then provide solutions for those fears at a price. 
We fear rejection. We fear not being desirable. Humanity has an almost primal fear of exile. A primal fear of being abandoned. It's why a solitary confinement is one of the most severe punishments in our criminal systems. We fear being alone with ourselves. Uh, for some of you, uh, you fear actually being with others more than you fear because you're introverts, right? Uh, no matter what uh, technological advances societies come up with, um, there is never a shortage of things to fear. Indeed, if that's not enough, the Bible itself, for some, can create yet another category of things to fear. Many uh, have a religion that's based on fear, the fear of punishment, the fear of hell, fear of being found out. Secondly, we're told the earth's been subjected to spiritual powers of darkness. <laughs> Wonderful, <laughs> right? Because of cosmic rebellion of created things against its creator. The Old and New Testament tells us that we <laughs> are not the only inhabitants of the cosmos, but there are spiritual beings that have also rebelled against our creator. Sweet dreams, y'all. <laughs> when Jesus came, he directly confronted those powers and actually claimed authority over them, but they are still on the loose, nonetheless. <laughs> Despite all the real and looming dangers in a fallen world, Jesus seemed to think that anxiety and fear and worry were not meant to rule your lives. He did not ignore evil or suffering. In fact, he directly confronted it. And if you're here today, and you might be suspicious that worry and anxiety and fear may be playing a more dominant role in your life than is healthy, I think Jesus has things to say to you today. I'm glad you're here. So let me read, then we'll pray. Luke 12, starting in 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, being Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, Man... Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Greed might be, your translation might say. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. And he turns to his disciples and he says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For 
Life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, the birds. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is in the field today and tomorrow thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven, in the heavens, that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let me pray. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray especially for those in this room for whom the worries and the anxieties of life are pummeling over them like waves right now. God, I pray for my friends in this room uh, who are barely hanging on. Uh, I, I pray for my friends in this room who feel desperate under the pressure of, of provision and, and uh, jobs and all the things that weigh on us, God, and, and steal our joy. Father, would you have mercy this morning? And Father, Holy Spirit, would you come and open our eyes to a, rea- a reality that Jesus Uh, seemed to think was functioning in the universe that many of us are blind to right now. Um, And it's that you are our Father and you love us deeply. Open our eyes to these simple things. In the name of Jesus, amen. This whole scene starts with uh, a guy asking Jesus to get involved in a family dispute. The guy wants Jesus to uh, tell his brother to do the right thing in his mind, uh, which was split the inheritance. Uh, This instance has a loose ring Uh, to the parable of the prodigal son, which is of a brother wanting his inheritance from his family. But Jesus apparently senses that something else is going on. This is not just about equal distribution of family wealth or wanting to blow some easy money. So he tells a parable about a successful businessman um, who's come into explosive growth and has to come up with solutions for his business, right? He builds bigger barns and in the end is called a fool by God. Now, now Jesus makes it clear that it's not wealth or success in business that is immoral in any way. It's not that he had treasure. It's that he had substituted material abundance uh, for relational abundance with God. That's what Jesus points out. He says, so is the one who lays up for himself treasure Um, but is not rich towards God. The rich man had made an exchange. He chose one at the expense of another. He prioritized his relationship to money at the neglect of his relationship to God. But here's the crux of the whole scene. That's all just setting the stage. Jesus, after 
he's being questioned by this guy after he tells this parable, then turns to his disciples and launches into a very famous passage. If you grew up in church, you probably knew many of the words that Jesus said and that if you've never grown up in church, never been in church, you probably, some of this is familiar. In fact, it's word for word uh, for the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, right? Which means that Jesus probably said this a lot, so much so that his disciples uh, could memorize it almost word for word. And his speech here is not about wealth, really. It's not about equal distribution. It's about anxiety. Starts with the man asking a question about wealth. Jesus tells a parable about a rich person. And then he turns to his crew and says, therefore, don't be anxious about your life. It's honestly a bit of a surprising turn if you think about it. I thought we were talking about money. And Jesus is talking about anxiety. It's very interesting, isn't it? See, Jesus seems to be connecting your pursuit of wealth, the way it, let me, let, okay, your pursuit of wealth, all right, the way in which you provide for yourself and your family, all right, by the way, totally legitimate, y'all, all right, New Testament's going to say, hey, work hard is for the Lord, don't be lazy, earn your keep, okay, Old Testament's going to say, go to the ant sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, Jesus is not condemning hard work, the Bible's not anti-work, when Jesus said, Birds neither reap nor sow. He's not saying, guys, don't worry about work. Just be a lazy slob and munch off other well-meaning people. No, that's not what he's saying at all. In fact, some of our anxiety is because we are lazy. Some of our anxiety is actually tied to the fact that you're lazy and you're not willing to put forth the work and you're afraid you're going to be found out. For some of you, the, the, the resolve of your anxiety is actually for you to start earning your keep, working hard, right? What he's doing, though, here is connecting our efforts to provide, right? That's, just a, that's a legitimate, legitimate pursuit, y'all. I want to provide for my family, right? But he's connecting that with an underlying anxiety which comes from what we believe about the universe. Jesus seems to be pointing out that very often our pursuits to secure our livelihood, things we legitimately need, Jesus' example are food and clothing. Last time I checked, that's pretty essential right? Jesus talking to the people in his day, maybe they had one or two pairs of clothes. This was real life situations for them, right? Agrarian society. Uh, For these people, the next meal or the next clothes, they didn't know where it might come from. He's connecting our pursuit of these things uh, in many people's lives are actually coming from a place of frantic, desperate anxiety. All of our good and right efforts Right? For some of us, our whole life's pursuit, motivated by anxiety, worry, and fear. What kind of fear? Well, the fear, basically, that there won't be enough. The kind of anxiety and desperation and fear that comes when you have too many people and not enough resources to go around. That's exactly what Jesus is addressing. The kind of anxiety that comes when you have too many needs and not enough resources, not enough supplies. Okay, now let's just sit with that for a second. I think if you would stop and think about it, a lot of our anxiety is rooted in this idea. There are too many problems, too much need, and not enough energy or resources to solve them. Now, let me say how this is true for me, especially with my anxiety around my kids and being a parent. It is when my personal and emotional and physical resources are tapped out, all right? So like, hard day at work, I'm tired, I get home, and then my kids begin bombarding me with requests for what? Emotional availability. Be present, Daddy. Play with me, 
right? And, <laughs> and as I was preparing this, it's like, it's like waves beating mercilessly <laughs> over me to the point where you're like, drowning would be better than this, right? <laughs> and my anxiety flares up. And it expresses its, and what's my anxiety right there in that moment? There's not enough resources of daddy to go around, right? That's what's going on, guys. It's anxiety. It's fear. It's anxiousness. There's not enough of me to go around right now, guys. I'm tapped out. Daddy's on E, right? And it bubbles out of you in what? Anger and frustration. But it's rooted in anxiety. That there's not enough to go around. Now, we're talking about an emotional resource. Granted, Jesus here is talking about physical resources. We all know that there's a limited amount of material wealth in the universe, right? That's how Bitcoin works, apparently, as well. There's apparently a limited amount of them, and that's what makes them valuable. I don't get it. Someone can explain that to you. Probably not me. The Googles, maybe. There's a limited amount of money and wealth in the world. When we become anxious that there is not enough to go around, things get Lord of the Flies real quick. Huh? Do they not? Is not history full of stories, some tragic, some heroic, of how people act when there are not enough resources to go around? Have you not watched like World War II documentaries about POWs, concentration camps? This is a real thing, y'all. When we are terrified that there is not enough resources to go around, we revert to animalistic violent behavior, do we not? History is full of stories of this. Horrific, Lord of the Flies type evil. When we are terrified that there will not be enough for me or my family, Jesus is saying that for some people, this anxiety rooted in what we believe about the universe is really the thing animating your entire life. Your entire life can be animated by this kind of anxiety and fear and worry. It can be for many people. Y'all, let's chat. The, really, the only real motivator. I'm just worried. I'm anxious. I don't think there's going to be enough. I'm tired. My wife's tired. My kids are tired. <laughs> right? The whole thing. And he turns to his disciples and says, not you guys. This is not going to be the case with you. My followers are not going to live out of that kind of scarcity mindset and anxiety. My followers are not going to be consumed with anxiety and worry. Why? What are the reasons that Jesus says that our life shouldn't be driven by anxiety? And it's actually totally brilliant, and it's totally logical. Like, yeah, Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. If you do not believe that, you will struggle to trust him and believe him. Jesus was the smartest man who ever lived on the face of the earth. If you do not believe that, you will not listen to him. And so he has this very brilliant logic here. He gives us a couple reasons, then a couple examples. Why? Why does Jesus say you should not let anxiety and fear and worry rule your life? Well, he gives us two things, and then two things to consider after each point. The first reason is pretty straightforward. He basically says, you guys know that the meaning and significance and the true joy of life is not skin deep. That's what he says. He says, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Jesus is jabbing at superficial definitions of life. He's saying the flourishing of your life is not dependent on the kind of food you eat, and the flourishing of your body is not dependent on the kind of clothes you wear. Jesus is basically saying don't be vain. God has designed a world in which there is plenty to go around, but if we adopt 
superficial definitions, if we have to be more luxuriously fed and more luxuriously clothed than everyone around us, you have become vain. And you found your value in comparison to others. And if you've done that, how fragile is your self-worth? Like how easily threatened by economic downturn or losing your job if your value as a person is just based on the fact that you eat better food than other people and you're clothed in better clothes than other people? Listen, if that's your security in life, your security sits on the edge of a knife, friend. I don't care how much sovereignty you think you have over your life. One phone call can change all of that. One sickness can take away your job, no matter how secure or how much money you make, right? And of course, you're going to live full of anxiety if the definition of a life is resting on those things. Like, how fragile is that? Of course, you're going to be full of worries. Clear example, dude. Dude, studies have linked suicide rates with stock market crashes. Like, you don't have to be a a statistician, sociological person to to know that these two things are connected. I found in my research of this week, story after, which I will spare you, but I found story after story after story of wealthy businessman, retired company president who had wives, children, and grandchildren, and when they lost large amounts of money in the stock market, decided that they would rather die than live without uh, um, an expendable income. Dispendable, what's the word I'm trying to say? Disposable, thank you. A disposable income. Sorry, heavy point. I messed it up. They decided they would rather die than live without the luxurious standard that they had achieved with whatever the money. So sitting in a car with the garage on or whether it was jumping off a building because the thought of death and losing their family and their very life was more bearable to them than the thought of losing money. Now, that's horrible. And we grieve with those who grieve, but Jesus is saying, don't be duped by skin-level definitions of what it means to be alive. Huh? And if we can not be duped by these definitions, we do not then have to live under the ever-present threat that exists in a fallen world of our possessions being taken away or our health being taken away or our money being taken away. Dude, it's clear that we are to compare the fragility of wealth, right, to Jesus' statement at the end when he describes a kind of wealth that is not threatened by that, right? A kind of wealth that can't be stolen or can't rot and decay. He's inviting us to compare the two. So he says, don't be anxious because life is more than food and body more than clothing. And then I imagine that he's sitting on a beautiful lakeside with a beautiful day like we've had this week, like it is today, which I'd rather be outside playing, rather, honestly, right? And he looks across the hill, I imagine, and he sees a flock of birds. And he says, hey, look, see the birds, consider the birds. They don't have storehouses. They aren't staying up late, wringing their wings, worrying about where the next worm will come from. And you giggle because you're supposed to giggle, right? Imagine a bird building a barn, right? And he says, but God meets all their needs. And then he drops this bomb that effectively, listen to this sentence, effectively shatters centuries of cynical survival of the fittest, anxiety-based living. He says this sentence that shatters all of that. He says, don't you know that you are more valuable than birds? Like, how much more of value are you than the birds? He's saying you are not a product of random biological processes, which would make us no different than the animals. Don't you know that you are of great value to God? And if, and if 
if that's the only thing we sit with today and are challenged by, then I think it's, that's good. Because if we're honest, when we've lived through the things we've lived through, when we've experienced the suffering that we've experienced, the trials that we're in right now, the number one question that comes into our mind is, does God have my best intentions in mind? The number one question that comes into any... Get a flat tire. Come on, God! Right? The number one question when real suffering enters our lives is, am I of any value to God, and does he see me, and does he care? Are we going to chat about this or not? Come on. When suffering enters our life, that's the first thing that goes on the chopping block. God's goodness. It's the first thing we try to deconstruct and disassemble. And he is saying to you right now something that can shatter your whole existence and put you back together anew. He loves you. He values you. You're on his priority list, y'all. You've not been pushed to the side. Twice, Jesus says, consider the birds, consider the grass. These things that God arrays in glory, he takes care, he feeds, he provides for. And you are the crown of creation, He's made you his image, and he values you so much more deeply than all these things. Guys, if we could just sit with that and marinate on that for the whole week, man, things would start happening. The second thing he gives, and the second thing he points to is this really practical, I love this observation he says. He says, no amount of worry can add a single hour to your life. (laughs) This is great. Jesus literally points to your limitations. He points to your limitations, and it says, you have to accept the unflinching reality that no amount of worry will change some things, primarily the time of your death. (laughs) He's pointing out to you in love and mercy that you are not all-powerful and sovereign over your life. And he says that should result in less anxiety. He's saying you really don't have total and comprehensive control over your life or death. And no amount of worry will add an hour to your life. He says, if you will accept that there are things outside of your control, that you are in fact a human who is limited in your power and abilities, you will worry less because you will then stop trying to control things that you have no control over, which is the source of most of our anxiety, right? Husbands, don't jab your wives. Wives, don't elbow your husbands, right? It's because you're trying to control things that are outside of your control, friend, You're trying to manipulate and exert your authority and influence in places that you do not really have it in the way that sometimes we try to assert it. And what Jesus points out is, dude, no amount of worry is going to change that. You are a limited being. It's so interesting. He brings up our limitation. (laughs) The thing that most of us would say, that's what's wrong with the world right? (laughs) That I don't have complete power. Most of us have a subconscious belief under the surface that if we were just in full control of all the aspects of our life, if we had unlimited power, the world would be amazing and my life would be amazing. Like we honestly believe this, guys. We do. We, okay, here, I, I can see you. You look skeptical. We really do think if everyone just acted like me, all would be well. We do. And if you're still like, no, I don't, Chris, I'm sophisticated. Okay, okay, all right, so when you're driving, okay, I've been in the car with people, it's not my wife, okay, it's not my wife, it's not my wife, I've been in the car with people that everyone driving faster than them is a complete idiot, 
and everyone driving slower than them is a moron. Well, Sunday just going to cause an accident, right? Well, apparently you and you alone know the right speed. Of course, that de depends on if you're late or not, you know, what the right speed is, but everyone else is an idiot. Most, most people tend to have a subconscious belief that if I had unlimited power, if I was in control right? Man, no worry. And this is the great thing about this. A lot of people are in that. There's a lot of people that believe that. Alexander the Great, Napoleon, Hitler, you know, they, these guys believed if all of the world was under their control and power, it would be a better place, right? So you're not alone. <laughs> Sorry about that. That was, that was under the belt, wasn't it? Oh, you know, <laughs> but we, we live with an illusion, y'all, that if we were in full control, that the things would be better, Right? There would be less anxiety, less worry, less frustration. And Jesus is saying the exact opposite, actually. Right? But realizing that life is more than food and worry can't add a minute to your life, uh, those are really simple things. But just realizing that is not the solution to your anxiety, y'all. Each one of these is followed by an example that Jesus says, meditate on this. Each one of these, worry, you know, what, what the life is more than food and worry can't add an hour to your life, each one is followed by an example. And he says, hey, Consider. That means meditate on this. Think about this. Dwell on this. Birds and flowers. Dude, stuff that my nine-year-old, my four-year-old can understand. Ravens and fields. His birds don't build storehouses. Fields don't toil and spin, but God feeds them and clothes them. And he makes this claim about God's values, that you are top among them. That's the claim that Jesus lays out for us. He says, you are a top value. You are top priority in God's heart. This is massive. This is revolutionary. Guys, listen, don't click it off because you Christianese, it sounds Christianese to you. If this doesn't rattle your cage a little bit, you're not paying attention. God is saying that you are the highest priority. You have priority over all creation to him. He values you more than birds, more than grass. He's saying you are vastly more important than these things. Therefore, Jesus says, know that God will take care of you. And then he calls his disciples this little nickname he came up with. He literally took two words and smushed them together. He took little and faith. That's oligos and pistis. And he called his disciples, he called them that name, oligopistis. It means, it's like a nickname. You little faiths, you little faith. You just can't, you struggle. You guys can't, you can't. You see, the thrust of Jesus' whole argument is you don't need to change your thinking about anxiety or money. You need to change your thinking about God. That's the thrust of his old argument, right? Jesus says the remedy for worry and anxiety is not more control or if you just had more money. Dude, how many of us buy that all the time? I do. I just want a little bit more money, right, right? Or maybe you just like manipulate the situation and control this outcome. He's saying that's not the remedy. The remedy is trust. That's what he's putting forth to us this morning. God values you more than these things. Will you trust that, right? It's trusting despite all of the evil, all of the suffering we see in the world, that God has good intentions for you. And that he will engage, y'all, in practical minutiae of provisions. That's a, that's a stout claim. That God loves you and will engage with you in these areas. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying God's looking out for you, right? Despite all the evil you may experience, he loves you. And as a side note, it's striking to me that this whole bit, Jesus refers to God as, do you notice this? Your father. The whole time, Jesus refers to God as your father. Now, he doesn't always do that, but here he does. And doesn't he know, like, who's in the crowd? Like, Judas is in the crowd. You know who that guy is? 
right? Like, doesn't he know there's like Pharisees in the crowd? That like, they don't, you know, he called them the son of the devil in some places. Like, Jesus, don't you know who's in the crowd? And of course he does. It's almost as if every time he says, your father, he's inviting you into something. He's saying, this caring, loving God who provides could be your father too. Will you believe it? Do you believe it? Will you let faith win over fear? Will faith be greater than fear in your life? Will faith define your life, not fear? Huh? Let him be your father. It's an invitation to step into the good provisions of a loving father. It's an invitation for you to tweak how you see God. Right? Not as some mean, overbearing overlord with the lightning strikes that we got from Zeus, but as a loving father who loves you and wants to provide for you in really practical, tangible ways. It's an invitation to own God as father for yourself. That's what I think. At the end, Jesus gives an alternative way to live. He says to his disciples, we don't live. My followers are not going to live out of a scarcity mindset of fear and anxiety. We will live and work under the safety of God's goodness. Therefore, he says, seek first the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. See, we often think the answer to our anxiety is more control. If I was in charge, there'd be no loose ends. Everything would be right. We think more power equals less anxiety. But Jesus' answer to your anxiety isn't more control. It's less. What's the alternative solution? It's the kingdom. What's the kingdom? Well, it's where God's in control. That's what the kingdom is. The kingdom is where God gets his way perfectly. That's what it means. The kingdom is where we give up control to God. That's what the kingdom of God. Dude, a king is the guy who's in charge in this area. You go to this kingdom and that guy's in charge. What's the delineating mark? Well, it's who gets his way. So he's saying the answer to your anxiety is not grabbing more control. It's relinquishing control. It's stepping into someone else's kingdom where God gets his way. You, step in, you can step into the kingdom at any point in any area of your life when you give God control. Jesus is saying, as long as you insist on remaining in charge, trying to control outcomes, trying to control others, anxiety and worry is inevitable. But if you will make it your goal to bring God's will into all the minutiae of life, if you will work hard, huh? and see yourself under the generous, loving provisions of a father, right? If your first priority, what you are seeking first, becomes God's will, his reign and rule in your life, submitting to him, he, he says, there's not going to be room for anxiety by the scarcity mindset. In fact, what Jesus seems to point out is the opposite will happen in your life, right? The radical alternative to hoarding wealth and worry and fear is giving it away according to Jesus. When you begin to see God's good pleasure of provisions over your life, your life begins to be marked by a radical generosity instead of radical anxiety. Jesus says, as we loosen our grip on material possessions, begin living out of a radical generosity and trust, not only does our anxiety loosen its grip on us, but our life begins to possess a kind of treasure that no thief can break in and steal. It's not threatened by economic downturn. So here's what I want to do right now. I want to transition to the time that we come to the table. So I just want you to get comfy, and we're going to go into a time of prayer, right? And here's the deal. Um, our anxiety as a person can have extremely complex roots in our lives. We may have hit on some of the roots of your anxiety. We may have not. 
There's so many things that play into why we become worried, anxious people, not to mention things like trauma and childhood experiences and all kind of stuff. And as I was uh, preparing this sermon, the word that kept coming into my heart was abandonment. If you are here today and there is an overwhelming fear of abandonment, I think God wants to talk to you. If there is a sense of abandonment in your past that you know is causing you to spiral in cycles of anxiety and fear, I want you to come up and get prayer today. We're going to have people on the other side of this stage when we come to the communion. And if that word to you is striking something in, in your heart and life, I, I, I just want you to, I want to encourage you to respond uh, and, and let someone else who loves you, who we trust, let them pray for you today and ask God to enter into that arena. And for some of us, this is very difficult because it's a massive amount of vulnerability that God wants to deal with things in your heart that you're really ashamed of and don't want to talk about. But if we don't give him access to those places, I don't know how we can begin to go forward as Christians. See, we tend to want to give God this the best parts of us, but he wants everything, even the parts of us that are full of shame and fear and regret. And my hunch is that God is the type of God who takes things that have caused death and look like death, and he brings new life into them. The second thing that jumped out to me as I was preparing for this is anxiety in many of our hearts and lives being rooted in our inability uh, to give up the driver's seat in our life. Um, if you are a control freak, I want you to consider something today. Uh, this comes from Tim Keller. He's, he gives us a picture of a house. He says, uh, if we were to say this house belongs to Jesus, or we could put it in another, put it in a whatever, and we could bob, all right, whatever, I don't care. Take it out of the religious context. Sometimes it helps us think more clearly about it. Let's just say Jesus, okay. This house belongs to Jesus. And then Jesus comes into the house, and he, he's going to go into your bedroom, and you say, oh, 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 <laughs> not in there. Sorry, that's, that's my space. That's, that's where I, you know, do my things. Okay, dude, the house doesn't belong to Jesus. You've not given him authority and control. If there are places in your heart and life where you are saying, and dude, we all do this in, in our own way. If there are certain sensibilities, certain things in your life that you are saying, you know, I, this just feels antiquated, and I'm not sure if I can give God access to things like that, like my sexuality or, or my mentality about this or how I think about this. If there are rooms in your house that you're saying, Jesus, you can come in. You know, you can do a little bit of redecorating. Like, I like peace. That's cool. I'll take that. You know, I'll take lack of anxiety. But this room is mine. And you know, dude, the house doesn't belong to Jesus. It belongs to you. You're the authority. If we maintain areas of our hearts and lives away from the touch and the rule of Jesus, you are still in control. You've not given out. You're not in his kingdom. He's in your kingdom. You've invited him into your kingdom. And you said you can come as long as you don't. It's conditional. He's not the king. If, and if you're the kind of person who has to be in control, you have to come to a crossroads at some point in your life and decide who am I going to trust more, myself or God? Who am I going to give the keys to the kingdom to? Because most of us have a key in our back pocket that we're hoping Jesus didn't ask about. And if that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity to come forward and get prayer and bring out the things that you're holding back authority from Jesus. 
And dude, I'm telling you, man, if you, you don't got to come up and do right. You can do it right in your seat. I'm telling you, if you will embark on this, if you will start tackling these areas that you are maintaining control, don't be surprised if peace and, and all these things flood in over the threshold of your life. If you're still trying to maintain control, I just want to say to you, you're not in the kingdom. Jesus has been, you're letting him come in your kingdom. You're not coming into his. I think it's important that we remind ourselves of that, because can I say something to you um, that's a little difficult for many people? Um, when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom, he means trust him and obey him without reservation. He means unconditional surrender. But can I say something to you that a lot of uh, Christians, it kind of chafes us strong? That does not mean everything will work out the way you want it. Sometimes when we surrender our hearts before God, this stuff hits the fan, as they say, right? It does not mean the outcome might or should be favorable. It does mean you're in the kingdom. It does mean you've given him authority and control. And if you are only obeying in areas that you yourself see the logic of why it works out for you and you think it's going to work out in the end, then I, I, I don't know, dude. I'm not, are you in the kingdom? Or are you only participating in things that make sense to you? Because if that's the case, you're still the king. Let's pray. Jesus, would you have mercy on our wandering, rebellious hearts, God? God, would you soften us with your kindness right now, Jesus, that you have, in fact, good intentions for us, Lord, and that it is a historical reality, Jesus, that you uh, died for us, Lord. You paid the price that we could not pay. Father, would our hearts increasingly receive the work that you have done for us? God, would you make us the kind of people who are increasingly rejoicing in what Jesus has done for us in our place? Thank you, God, that the son became a slave so that the slaves could become sons. You are worthy. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray these things. Amen. Guys, if we can pray for you for anything going on in your heart and life, man, come down. These lovely people would love to spend time talking and praying with you. If not, have an excellent week. We'll see you next time.